At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Alana, we're back. I'm so excited. We survived our first episode. We did. And I think it was overzealous of us to try to do it during the holiday season and wrapping everything up and business and, but we did. Yeah, we did it. But you know, what, what is the expression, something about giving, if you want something done right, give it to a busy mom to do. We have definitely been in that mode between our own year in business and our kids and holiday Mm -hmm. social life. It has just been Right. Crazy. Yes. But science fair projects. Oh, all our kids are the science to fair projects. <laughs> <laughs> it is so hard not to yeah. just do the project yes. and be like, you know, I want you to learn from this experience. If you succeed, great. If you fail, I hope you learn from it. <laughs> No, oh, that's, so that's hard. too hard. I know. I'm like, I love what you're doing, but it's all wrong. <laughs> it's not how I would have done it. Right. It's like, <laughs> let's think about this. <laughs> but we'll we'll let them have at it. But I'm glad now that we have a little bit of time to sit back down and dig into JonBenet Ramsey and her case. You know, since we last recorded, John Ramsey's actually sent a petition to the governor of Colorado asking him to turn over the evidence in the homicide to an outside source for DNA testing. I know. Well, and so many crimes have been solved recently with extensive DNA testing. And was it the Zodiac killer that was solved recently by like familial DNA testing? So I hope that they're able to do that and they're willing to do that. Right, be amazing. Yeah, I think, you know, he's got to be getting older in life. You know, Patsy has already passed away and I'm sure he would really like for this crime to be solved in his lifetime. I'm sure. So, you know, it's sort of obvious that when a child is murdered, the police are going to initially focus Mm -hmm. on the parents. I mean, just like when a spouse is murdered, they, you know, look at the other husband or wife. I'm a nerd, so I did just a little bit of research. And did you know that over 500 children in the United States are killed every year by their parents? Wow. That seems like a lot, right? I mean, what is that, like 10-ish per state? crazy. Seems like it seems like a lot. But of those, you know, in the in these cases of filicide or murder by a parent, 72% of the kids are 6 years of age or younger and John Bonet was 6 years old when she died. The dads are slightly more likely to be, be the killer, uh, 57 to 42%. So 57% of dads, 42% of moms. Wow. I know, right? It's big, yeah. It, it, yeah. So in this episode we're going to discuss the other facts and oddities of the case that made the police initially focus on the Ramseys and their family, as well as talk a little bit more about the history of the Ramsey home after the family walked out the door on the afternoon of December 26th, 1996, and never returned. I'm excited to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. It's a really fascinating story about the history of this house. Now, if you didn't listen to our first episode, we hope you'll go back and listen to it because we went through the timeline of the crime as well as discussed the ransom note in depth. And the ransom note is definitely going to come into play into why, you know, they really focused on one of the Ramsey family members as a key suspect in this crime. That's one of the weirdest things that, that we've learned so far to me is the ransom note and the placement of the note and the the length of the note. Just weird, weird stuff. And she was already gone. We know now she was already gone by that time. And there was still a ransom note left. I'm with you. To me, the ransom note is the thing that solves this crime at the end of the day. Now, maybe it's something DNA related. 
but there is something about that ransom note. The puzzle pieces will come together with some sort of information in that ransom note. But it's with that knowledge of the timeline in the ransom note that the police formed their first theories on the case. So they knew at the end of the day on December 26th that John Bonet had been murdered, not kidnapped, and that the ransom note was left, but no ransom call ever so was weird. made to the house. Right. And so I think the first question that the police have to ask themselves is, was it the family or was it an intruder? Mm-hmm. Okay, Elena, so let's chat a little bit first about John Ramsey. If you remember from the first episode, he was a very successful businessman. He had actually just won the Entrepreneur of the Year for Boulder right before John Bonet was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he seemed to have, from all accounts, sort of a hands-off approach to his kids and his household. And he, he really let Patsy run the house and the family. So let's assume... For the sake of conversation, that John is the one that murdered John Bonet. Okay. What's the evidence? You know, really, it's just sort of some overall suspicious behavior, both on the day of the crime and afterward. There isn't like one smoking gun where they found his DNA or handprint or footprint or anything like that. But as I say, a lot of little things add up and it just seems odd considering the situation. Mm-hmm. So some of these things sort of in the order they occurred. So remember, first the ransom note. Remember, the ransom note said they would call between 8 and 10 a.m. and give instructions on the drop-off. But neither John nor Patsy mentioned that timeline for the ransom call had come and gone. And so, you know, 10 o'clock goes by and nobody says like, hey, aren't we worried that, you know. Think about that. Right. They're not talking to the police and saying, what do we do now? The call hasn't come in. So that was a little suspicious to the police. And then when John Ramsey and his friend Fleet White went to search the house for anything that was suspicious or out of place in the home that afternoon around one o'clock, when they found John Bonet's body in the wine room, you know, Fleet says that John exclaimed, oh my God, before the lights in the wine room came on, and then he would have had no way to see John Bonet's body. Wild. It's wild. And like, this is one of his very good friends. I mean, can you imagine me going to the police with you and saying, oh yeah, she she exclaimed before she could have ever seen. Like, this is not somebody that has something out against him. For right. him to say that, I feel like he really had to feel like that was the, the chain of events mm-hmm. and have a lot of conviction about right. that. But let's talk about this wine room for a minute. So the Ramseys were actually not big drinkers. And they just sort of jokingly referred to it as the uh, wine room. It was actually just a storage area. They didn't actually keep a wine room there. But in their house, they called it the wine room. And so that sort of stuck. But when I hear this in accounts, I'm thinking of, you know, nice wood paneled yes, with wine and, you know, temperature controlled. Mm-hmm. And if we've actually posted some pictures on our website at crimeestate.com, but this is a cinder block room. It has a concrete floor, cinder block walls. You know, you can see that it's, it's number one, it's windowless and it's really just used for storage. So in the photos, you'll see that there are leftover paint cans and window screens. This this is not a fun wine room. And if you look at the floor plan of the house, which we also have posted, you actually have to walk through the boiler room to get to the wine room. So I think one has to ask, you know, if an intruder broke in and was trying to kidnap John Bonet, how did they end up in right, this room? Right. Now, when you look at the basement, it is sort of a maze of doors. So I think it's possible that they came down and turned left instead of right and just got confused. Um, but it, it's definitely a question of how did John Bonet get into this room as opposed to a room with a window or an exterior door if kidnapping was 
the end result ultimately. Right. Because it's weird because her bedroom was, again, it was on the third floor, I guess, because there was basement and then living floor and then the kids' bedrooms and then the parents' bedrooms. So So four floors total. That's weird to go from her floor to the very bottom floor if if they're going to kidnap her. Does that make any sense? Well, yeah, you would, I mean, they could have gone through the front door, you would think, or, you know, we'll, we'll talk in some of the intruder theories about a window in the basement, you know, so if, if that's where they were going, maybe that's the thought process, but I don't know how you get through the boiler room into this wine room, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. Right. So continue with the list of items that made John Ramsey a suspect in JonBenet's murder is sort of the way he acted after finding the body. You know, remember when he found her in the wine room, he picked her up and he carried her away from his body. Like you're carrying, mm, I'm trying to think, what would that be? Like like a, a, a wet, smelly dog, right? Like your dog that has, this is such a horrible example, but it's true. I'm thinking of my dog like rolling in mud and I want to pick him up and carry him. Like right. he doesn't hold her to his body. It, it's very sad. And so I think, it felt off. Why would a parent not carry a child close to their body? Even if they're in rigor mortis, which is what some people think happened at that time. She's so small. You would still think she would have been carried close to his chest. Right. So one of the detectives recalled seeing how he carried her up the stairs. And she said she just had a gut feeling that John murdered her. In fact, moments after the body was found, Detective Arndt wondered if John Bonet had been killed by John Ramsey. And as she watched him carrying John Benet up the stairs, she went on record as saying that she tucked her gun next to her and consciously counted that she had 18 bullets. She was worried that the murderer was in the home and she would have to use her gun. Mm-hmm. So again, that's one detective's opinion, but it, it struck the the police force as odd. Now, also remember, John called his pilot not long after John Bonet's body was discovered, and ordered him to fly them out of town. Now, I think it's worth noting that they did have plans that day to fly to Michigan, so the pilot was probably already sort of on call. But it's odd that John would call and say, "Hey, we're not going to Michigan. We're actually going to Atlanta." I think the call would have been in my house. <laughs> When I have my private pilot, hey, <laughs> there has been an accident that's occurred or a situation that's occurred. We're not leaving today. Right. Not, hey, our destination has changed. Right. Yeah. All the things that you just went over are so weird to me. Like everything is so weird. Um, I feel like I'd want to talk to the police and try to figure out what happened and be as helpful as possible and cradle my child or leave my child there and scream for help and or send my friend. I mean, everything's just weird. I agree with you. And, you know, it's hard to put yourself in right, somebody absolutely. else's just situation, but doing my best to put myself there, none of these things mm-hmm. are what I would do. Not, not just one of them or two of them. None of them, I think, are what come to mind. Mm-hmm. And so... When the Ramseys leave the house on December 26th, the police ask them to go to the hotel to be interviewed. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to go spend the night at a friend's house and grieve privately. And that also is suspicious to me. Like you said, I I would want the police out there searching Mm -hmm. for the person that killed my child immediately. Now, maybe I wouldn't want to be in the home where the crime occurred. I I can see wanting to go to a separate location Mm -hmm. 
But I would want a 24-7 line of communication with the police about right. what's going on. You know, what else can I tell you? What questions do you have for me? So I think it's just right. very interesting that they didn't want to be interviewed. And with the ransom note that was left, I feel like in wanting to protect my second child, my other child, like I want the police around because I don't know what's going on. Is someone targeting me? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, John Ramsey goes on record as saying that he feels like that ransom note was targeted to him and that John Binet was kidnapped because of him. And so if that's the case, to your point, you would want the police protecting mm-hmm. Burke. Right, right. So, you know, I think most of the country felt that the Ramseys should have been talking to the police and, mm-hmm. and wanted the police out there searching for the killer. It really didn't help the PR story for either John or Patsy Ramsey that they immediately hired separate attorneys. Now, you know, I'm married to a lawyer. He's always going to tell you to hire an attorney. I don't care if it's like somebody stubbed your toe on the front porch. He's going to say hire an attorney first. So I don't put a lot of credit on that. But they also hired a media consultant. And that just does not sit well with me. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, Burke needed the media consultant for his Dr. Phil interview. Right. But that's 20 years post-crime. I mean... Hiring a media consultant before you sit down with the police really rubs everybody the wrong way. So a week after the murder on January 1st of 1997, John and Patsy Ramsey went on CNN before ever speaking with the police. And we've posted a clip of that interview on our website, but it's in that interview that Patsy sort of infamously says, there is a killer on the loose. And if you are a resident of Boulder, keep your babies close to you. There is someone out there. And it took the couple and their attorneys four months from the time of that interview to come to an agreement on the terms for a police interview. I didn't even know that was something you could negotiate. Right. right? Like if the police want to interview you, don't they just get to do that? I mean, maybe your lawyer's present. Right. But I didn't realize you could say no. Right. Maybe maybe we're naive and just. Maybe maybe, maybe more... we just don't have as much money as the right. Rockies. It's <laughs> right. really what true. that comes down to. Um, so I think that was one of the things that, you know, just the general public and the police thought were concerning that they they took so long to be interviewed. And initially they would only agree to be interviewed together, not separately. Now that's not how things ended up playing out. They were interviewed separately. But again, it's odd that they wouldn't be interviewed separately because you would think they would each have stories that would corroborate each other if what they said occurred is what actually occurred. Right, right. So what would be the motive for if he were the person who did this? What would be the motive? Well, I think that's a great question, right? Because by all accounts, John was a really good, I mean, yet sort of hands-off father, Um, I think the motive in John being associated with the crime comes down to the coroner finding evidence of sexual assault. So the question is, you know, did John accidentally kill her while trying to keep her quiet during an assault and then strage the rest of it to make it look like a kidnapping? Now, I I think it's important to note that John Bonet's pediatrician, Francisco Buff, I'm probably slaughtering his last name, um, said that he never saw any indication that the child had ever experienced sexual abuse. And and really, there's just not a lot of other evidence or motive as it pertains to John Ramsey. Most theories in this case focus more on Patsy and JonBenet's brother, Burke. Though in 1999, 
The grand jury did think that they had enough evidence to indict John and Patsy for two counts of child abuse resulting in death. One count accused them of letting John Benet be placed in a situation where she might be harmed or killed, and the other accused them of helping an unnamed person escape prosecution on suspicion of murder and child abuse resulting in death. The DA at the time in Boulder is Alex Hunter, and not surprisingly, he is friends with the Ramses and their attorneys, which also resulted in a lot of controversy, but he refused to sign the indictment and prosecute the Ramses, saying that he just didn't have enough evidence to take it to trial. Now, that was 1999. In 2008, touch DNA evidence did clear John Ramsey as a suspect in his daughter's murder. Hey, can we go back and talk about the basement? I know we've touched on yeah, it earlier, but yeah. I, want to, I want to circle back to that. For sure. It sounds dark and scary and sad to me. Is that kind of... Yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean, it was super bleak, concrete walls, concrete floors. You know, it was re- really mainly used for storage. Mm-hmm. They did have a laundry room down there and a boiler room. That's that's not something here in Texas that we see. We don't right. really have boiler rooms, but right. I guess... Yeah. Certain parts of the country have that. And I saw references to a train room or a hobby room. And we'll chat more about that when we talk about the case against Burke with the train room. So a little bit of quick history on the house. You know, after the Ramses moved out of the house, it sat vacant for quite a while. And in February of 98, a group of investors bought the house for $650,000 with a promise to resell it and donate the profits to the JonBenet Ramsey Children's Foundation. But Elena, they really did not have any luck selling it. For sure. I mean, that's a hard sell, right? Right, So, Even for us. Yeah, even for us. That's right. (laughs) So they ended up renting it to a coach at the University of Colorado. And he was there from 99 to 2001. But he was fired in 2001 and moved back to California. And in June of 2001, this is really interesting to me, they changed the address from 755 15th Street to 749 15th Street, okay. just to sort of get rid of that stigma around the address. Right. Not that a quick internet search couldn't... Uh, right. But, <laughs> but, you know, if <laughs> you're going to buy the house and have the address, maybe you want it to be a little bit different. Right. And in May of 2004, the home was finally purchased by Tim and Carol Milner for $1.05 million. Now, the Milners had five children... And they ended up gutting pretty much the whole house, but definitely the basement that we've been talking about. And they took it from a series of small rooms that you'll see in the floor plan to a really large family room. Carol Milner said she wanted to create a space where all of her kids could hang out. And Elena, I was showing you photos of that earlier. I mean, it, the, the renovation's pretty impressive. Right, right. And you posted that on crimeestate.com. It looks completely different. Um, they wanted to make it look like a cozy Colorado lodge. Um, so it doesn't, no resemblance to the cold and bleak. No resemblance at all. It looks totally different. You know, they added a stone fireplace and a bar, and they really took that dark and dank concrete basement to sort of a a Colorado hangout, lodgy feel kind Mm -hmm. of place. They actually remodeled the whole house um, and did a really nice job on it. You know, this was done in the late 90s, right, by the Ramses. So, Bringing it into the 2000s, totally different look for houses by then. We posted the pics of the updates on our website too. But after traveling back and forth from California to Colorado for many years, the Milners decided to put the house back up for sale. 
In July of 2008, they listed it for $2.68 million. It did not sell. And in May of 2009, they relisted it for $2.29 million. It did not sell then either. In February of 2011, they listed it for $2.3 million and it didn't sell then either. So to date, the home is currently vacant, but still owned by the Milners. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. More Milners. I know. Well, you know, the Milners have an interesting family story. I think they're fine holding on to this house. Okay. All right. Yeah, she comes from a very wealthy evangelical like I think her dad was some big evangelical minister or something. So I think they're good to just hold on to this okay. as their All estate. Right. But um yeah, very interesting for sure. And I'm gotcha. curious if they're renting it out and we just don't know about it. So we just outlined um, John and if he had any motives or what if someone were to make the case against John we kind of outlined our ideas on that can we talk about Patsy oh for sure we can okay. talk about Patsy All right. because Delve into that because Patsy is is the big topic of the John Benet Ramsey murder gone we hate to talk ill of her but do it. A- absolutely so okay quick refresh on patsy ramsey if you were unfortunate enough not to listen to our first episode which you should obviously go back and do she was the second wife of john ramsey and she was really happy being the wife of a respected businessman and all that included i found some really great examples about right. patsy ramsey and the life she lived but i have to go off on a tangent for a second and say over the holidays I started rewatching Designing Women. <laughs> Have you seen that? Did y'all watch I mean, that growing up? I mean, okay. Maybe, kind of. Yeah. You're like, no, Heather, we were not as like, yeah. <laughs> sad as you were as well, children. You were, in, were you in Kentucky still? Yeah, I was okay, still in Kentucky, Kentucky, of course. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, oh, okay, thanks. Melanie watched it too. In Good Houston, job. Houston. Yeah. Okay. In Houston. Okay, Houston and Kentucky watched. That's right. What, she's younger than us. Okay. So anyway, I've, you know, I was working on this story about Patsy Ramsey and I turned on Designing Women last night. And I was like, oh my gosh, Patsy Ramsey and Delta Burke, like really look a lot alike. And they kind of do. They kind of do. And it's that Atlanta vibe. Like it was the same time period. So from now on, when we say Patsy Ramsey, I just want you to picture Delta Burke and Designing Women because that, yeah, she was... You know, high society, wanted everything to be perfect. I read this one story where she threw a luncheon for John's office and it was a Gone with the Wind theme and she spent $30,000 on this luncheon. And his his staff at the time at the office was like, this, I mean, it was a nice luncheon, but we could have done this for like five to $10,000, you know, but that's just sort of who she was. She wanted a big production. She wanted everything to be sort of picture perfect. I read another story where they had purchased a dog for their family and the dog was sick. And so she just went and exchanged it for a dog that looked just alike. That that just blew my mind. It's like, so you've already brought this dog home and fallen in love with it. And 48 hours later, you're like, oh, it's sick. Never mind. We'll go get a replica. That's crazy. And I don't think she ever told the kids that there was like a switch in the dogs. You can get away with that with goldfish. Right. But that's about it. Right. So, you know, really just to summarize Patsy, she sort of had this vision for her life and nothing really was allowed to interfere with the vision or the way she, you know, showed herself and her family oh, to so the world. That already brings up red flags to me. Like it's messy. Like 
Yeah, it'd be great if, you know, our Instagram lives were like our real lives, but they're not. They're like, definitely not. No. Yeah, we should start a trend where we just photograph like the worst parts of our that, day. That, Have you heard of this be real trend? Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. And every time, so a girlfriend got me to sign up, but every time it comes up, I'm like, oh no, I can't post a picture of this. But I think that's the whole point. Can I tell you, that's probably really bad is that whenever like my youngest son is throwing fits, I'll record him. (laughs) I love that so much. Going back, I'm like, remember last week, can you act like this? Let's not do that again. I love it. Is that bad? Well, I mean, I don't think you're sharing it with everybody. I'm not, but I could. (laughs) Click up a button. Melanie, what (laughs) do you- Everyone would know. (laughs) Yeah, I've done that before, and <laughs> I've threatened to send it out to hit Cole's friends. Oh, no. Um, yeah. I haven't. I haven't ever, but I... Sometimes the threat's all you need. It's messy. I, I, I'm like, Life oh, is- you want to take a look at this? You want to see what it's like when you're acting this immature? Right. Right. Yeah. I have to look at it? <laughs> Life is beautifully messy. Yes. It's a beautiful oops all the yes. time. Yes. So, Yeah. Yeah, she wouldn't survive in any of our houses, for sure. (laughs) So, okay, so what's the evidence against Patsy if we're going to assume that she did this crime just for the sake of conversation? Mm -hmm. Most of the evidence is really circumstantial. You know, Patsy seemed to be a very overbearing mother. Some psychologists, in retrospect, have said, like, she had narcissistic personality disorder or she was a narcissistic mother. And her expectations of perfection really caused strife at home. And I think it's sort of this personality trait that is why so much was made of JonBenet's bedwetting and how that could have angered Patsy enough to have her lash out at JonBenet. You know, because we talk, a six-year-old bedwetting is annoying, but Mm -hmm. it's not Mm -hmm. unusual or odd, you know. But if she had this expectation of perfection, that could have been a problem. Right. So Patsy tells the police that when she got up on the morning of the 26th, she did her makeup and she put on the same clothes that she wore to the party the night before, which that's not how I get up, but I think that's how some people get up. I have two cups of coffee before anybody's allowed to talk to me. I definitely don't put on my makeup first, but I did grow up in the South and I know people that do that. That's weird. I mean, it's weird, I guess. but, I mean, it's your family. I know, but, you know, you want your husband to see you beautifully done up. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't he either. He, get, he gets what he gets. And he doesn't put you fit. Isn't <laughs> <Right>. that right? <laughs> so anyway, she gets up. She puts on her makeup. She puts on the clothes from the night before. And a lot is made of that because the police thought, is she the kind of woman that would put on her clothes from the night right. before? I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt here and think about my Christmas morning We get up, we're in our pajamas, we open presents, we do lunch or brunch. It's probably two or three before I shower and get dressed to go to this party. So my clothes really haven't been on that long. And if they're like holiday festive stuff, I could see putting on the same thing. I'll roll with that. Uh, I love that. Thanks for rolling with (laughs) with me. Uh, But the police are like, did you really put on the same clothes or were you just in the same clothes all night because you murdered your child and didn't get a chance to change before we showed up? So they thought that was... Concerning, and they also found evidence of fibers from her coat in the duct tape that was on John Benet's mouth. Now, if you remember the timeline of the crime from last episode, when John found her in the basement, he actually pulled the duct tape off her mouth in the basement and carried her upstairs, mm-hmm. and then Patsy touched her body. Mm-hmm. 
So I think there's some question of would there have been enough fibers on John Bonet from the night before to make it to the duct tape? I, I'm not a forensic analyst. I don't really know how that works, but it was suspicious, right? However, the strongest evidence against Patsy Ramsey is really the ransom note. So remember that it was written on her stationery from a notepad that she kept in the kitchen. And in 2000, Sina Wong, who is a handwriting expert, said that it was highly probable that Patsy wrote the note. So a longer note, and this note was three pages long, just gives experts like more handwriting to work with, right? It's not a two sentence note. It's three pages. So they've got lots of handwriting to work with. And the handwriting expert found over 200 examples of similarities to Patsy's writing. In particular, the letter A was striking because both Patsy and the writer of the ransom note used what I'm going to call a typographical A. I don't know what actually what the term is, but, you know, if if I just write an A, it's like a circle with a line. Mm -hmm. But in my head, a typographical A has like a little like uh, inverted C at the top of it. So like a little hump at the top and then you bring your line down and then you draw your A. Think okay. English letters. Okay, gotcha. Okay. So it's just, it's an unusual way to write your A and both the ransom note writer and Patsy wrote it this way. We've actually posted pictures of the ransom note and the similarities that the handwriting expert uh, pointed out on our website, crimeestate.com. So the thing I keep coming back to you is that there were no fingerprints found on this ransom note. How does that happen? She's the one that finds it on the stairs. On the stairs. On those like spiral stairs. So it's small, right? You're not walking down this big right. wide staircase right. where you can stand and look at it. And I just don't know how you don't immediately reach down and pick that up. Right. So that that just, I just can't get past that. At the end of the day, that is the one thing. It's not Patsy's hand fingerprints. It's not John's fingerprints. I don't know how you have a ransom note in your home from your daughter and nobody in the house's fingerprints are on it. sense. That, that blows my mind. Zero sense. Okay. So then motive. Okay. Yeah. So motive. So Steve Thomas, who was a detective for the police department, who ended up resigning from the Boulder police department, said that he thought that Patsy Ramsey strangled John Bonet in a panic on Christmas night after accidentally causing a serious wound to her head. And he sort of thinks that, um, you know, she flew into a fit of rage when she saw her either wetting the bed or something like that and hit her or threw her and she hit her head. And Patsy thought this is, you know, she's not going to survive this inju injury. Now we need to come up with some sort of story to cover this up. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that John Ramsey, after sort of realizing what happened, chose to protect his wife rather than help the authority to determine what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, this fit of rage scenario really doesn't explain the evidence of sexual abuse that they found in the autopsy. So one other thought process is that perhaps Patsy walked in on either John or Burke molesting John Bonet and goes to hit them, right, to get them off of her but accidentally hits John Bonet instead. But if that's the case, like you sort of would have thought they would have found more DNA from either of those parties on John Bonet's body. I, I, you know, it just, it goes back and forth. None of the evidence sort of syncs with either of those scenarios. Mm -hmm. Now, remember in 2008, DNA test ultimately ruled out both John and Patsy Ramsey as the murderer. But 
also remember when we were talking about John that the grand jury did choose to indict both him and Patsy for the crime, but the DNA dis- declined to sign the indictment. Right. Well, I mean, which kind of goes back to what we touched on in episode one, that they're wealthy, they're Caucasian, they, they're they well known in the community. So it, to me, that doesn't sound surprising that the DA chose not to, you know, file those what do you call it? I, I guess just charges. Oh. I don't know. I'm not in that, right. that legal yeah, world. It's a little confusing the, to the me. But for that. Right. Yeah, I agree. And remember, also, the police were told to treat them like victims, not suspects initially. Oh, right. right. Which is not a mandate that comes very often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was September of 1998, which is almost two years after the crime, that they convened this grand jury. And the grand jury looked over 30,000 pieces of evidence to see if there was just enough evidence to charge any of the suspects with a crime. They voted to charge both John and Patsy Ramsey with child abuse resulting in first degree murder. But again, the DA said, I I just can't take this to trial. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to prosecute or sign off on these charges. And you can go down the rabbit hole of internet conspiracy theories about the DA and John and Patsy's lawyers and how they knew each other and were connected. It's probably, you know, very much like any other small town in America where, you know, that just, that's just sort of how it works sometimes, unfortunately. However, it should go on notice saying that in 2008, when the Ramseys were officially cleared based on that DNA testing, Patsy had died two years previously from her, you know, complications mm-hmm. of with ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. So she never sort of saw that final clearance of her name before she died. Which is sad. It is. I mean, if she had nothing to do with it, it it's very sad. Right. Right. Yeah. So like we discussed at the beginning of the episode, though, John Ramsey wants all of the DNA that's currently available to be analyzed by an outside forensic lab and... I think, you know, either the ransom note, some clue in the ransom note or some advancement in DNA where they can pick apart different familial genes or I, I don't know. I'm, I'm talking like a scientist who doesn't know what they're doing right now, but some sort of advancement in DNA is going to help solve this case for right. sure. And that, that makes me feel like maybe he didn't know anything or have anything to do with it because why would he, I would just, if I feel like he would just sink into oblivion right? right just let yeah, it like go no one, not yeah, keep pushing right. I agree with that if if you thought somebody in your family was involved even if you didn't know mm-hmm. why would you keep pushing right. for answers right agreed okay well let's change direction for a minute and look at the case against Burke Ramsey you know he had this Dr. Phil interview in 2016 and when he went on there many people speculated that he was the one that killed John Bonet mm-hmm. let's do a quick refresh okay on Burke Ramsey. Okay. So at the time of the crime, Burke is nine years old. And he sort of had this history of violence. And we talked about this on the last episode. Is it a history of violence or is it just like rambunctious boy behavior? Right. We sort of go either way. Mm-hmm. However, it's pretty universally accepted that he did have a habit of wiping feces on the wall and on John Bonet's things. Right. Now, you know, Which I'm a nerd. not normal. I mean, it's out of our realm of in my realm of normal. That is not something I'm aware of. So, the habit of doing this is actually called scatolia, and there are a lot of reasons why it might occur. The one that seems to sort of fit here in this circumstance is that it's a cry for attention, Mm -hmm. and the thought 
being is that because most people find poop unpleasant, that when a child smears it around, the response from a parent or a caregiver is likely to be upset or angry. And for children who are not getting attention, any response is better than no attention. So they would rather have their parents be angry with them and pay attention to them with the anger than to just not pay attention to them which make, at which all. Which kind of makes sense of what we know about the family. She it was absolutely the does. queen and presumably has more way more attention on her being the sweet little blonde-headed little girl who's in the beauty pageants than he would have. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, you know, it's feasible that Burke just didn't like the amount of attention he was getting and and was focused on sort of not hurting, but hurting his younger sister in order to get attention for himself. And, you know, sibling dynamics are hard. I, I only have one child, so I'm not really sure how that works. You guys both have two. Love-hate relationship. Yeah. All day, 24-7. Okay. As controversial as the theory goes, here's sort of how they think that Burke may have committed this crime. He gets up in the middle of the night for a snack and he prepares some pineapple and milk for himself as a late night snack. And that is said to be one of Burke's favorite snacks. I've never eaten. Have you ever eaten pineapple with milk? No, it sounds gross. It does to me too. Like the pineapples in a bowl with the milk in there as well? Yeah. I was picturing a bowl of pineapple. And a glass of nope, milk. Nope, nope. It's a bowl of pineapple with like milk poured over it. No, no, I don't know that. So the thought process is that maybe John Bonet gets up in the middle of the night and she comes downstairs and takes a piece of Burke's pineapple, which enrages him. And if we go back to the theory of, hey, John Bonet gets all the attention, I don't like my sister, then maybe this tiny little thing of taking a piece of pineapple could actually enrage him, right? And the autopsy did show that JonBenet had pineapple in her digestive system that nobody remembers feeding to her. So there's a question of when did she eat the pineapple? Now, Burke goes on record as saying he did not get up and have pineapple in the middle of the night. Now, he does say, however, that he got up in the middle of the night. Just not that he had pineapple. He says he actually told Dr. Phil in that interview that he woke up and went down to play with a toy that he had received for Christmas. Interesting. But, yeah. So going back to, you know, did Bert kill her? The thought is maybe she grabbed the piece of pineapple. He was enraged. He hits her over the head or pushes her and she hits her head. And then the parents sort of cover up the crime mm-hmm. for him. So despite the fact that it's hard to imagine Bert killing a sister, there are a couple things that raise questions about whether or not he was involved. While he was being interviewed about the murder shortly after it occurred, Burke at nine covers his mouth when he is asked about the pineapple by the interviewer. And typically in psychology or in, you know, training of how you read interviews, this is considered to be a common tell for somebody that's withholding information. He also told Dr. Phil that he got up to play with the toy. And in the crime scene photos, you can see a Lego box with the same wrapping paper that the Ramses used that Christmas in the basement wine room. So the question is, did he get up? We talked about that there is a train room, hobby room down there. And did he take that Lego box downstairs to play with it in the hobby room? 
it, it just, it's a little bit interesting that that box with the wrapping paper mm-hmm. is found in the same room mm-hmm. where John Bonet was murdered mm-hmm. or where her body was found. We don't know that that's where she was murdered. After the crime occurred, Burke was interviewed by a psychologist and he told them that his mother was, in parentheses, going psycho looking for John Bonet and that she was, in parentheses, overreacting. He seemed happy and carefree the whole time and joked about being too busy playing video games to worry about his sister. Now, fast forward 20 years when he does this interview with Dr. Phil, which if you all have not watched this interview, let, let's post a link to that on our website. It's really creepy. Um, and Dr. Phil actually tells people before the interview, like, hey, be aware the affect of this person is odd and you're going to find it disturbing. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, he goes on with Dr. Phil and he's still smiling and laughing whenever he's talking about how worried his mom is about John Bonet. And that, that just really unnerved a lot of people. Melanie, I can see your face. You're just, you've got cringes. Yes, I know. I I just saw a picture because I had been looking on my phone um, while you were talking. I was Googling. I wasn't uh, multitasking. I was multitasking about Burke. And I looked at a picture and his smile. It's not good. It's not good <laughs> at all. But I also always want to give kind of the benefit of the doubt. This is Absolutely. not an actor. This is, you know, a real person and having a weird reaction. And Dr. Phil is also weird, uh, too. Agreed. So I, yeah. you know, I, I feel sorry for him there. And then, of course, I was going down a rabbit hole trying to see where he was today and how he is. And I'm like, it's really none of my business. But like many of us, I was sort of interested. Right. I, I also went down that rabbit hole. Okay. I'm not going to lie. Um he graduated, I want to say he graduated from Purdue, yeah. maybe. And uh, yes, I think he graduated in 2005. From oh, Purdue. thank you, Melanie. Yes. <laughs> and now he is a computer scientist or a computer engineer. Um, he's about 35 years old. He may or may not be in a relationship, according to Instagram. He looked like there was a woman. Oh yeah. my, did you find his Instagram? Uh, this is all within my five minutes. Of, uh, I love it. You know, you guys were talking. I was looking at Burke. But once again, I feel bad. You know, we're all mom of young men. Um, ours are much younger than him. And, you know, I, I a little part of me is like, okay, this is a nine-year-old kid we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But there's lots of suspiciousness to go around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll give it okay, back to you. So, thanks, Melanie. <laughs> I, love, I love the rabbit hole that you just went down. That makes me really happy. So in all accounts... From both John and Patsy Ramsey, they say that Burke was asleep when they found the ransom note. And then even after the police arrived and started searching the house. Now, Burke later tells investigators that he was awake, but scared by what he was hearing. So he stayed in bed. I think that's a normal nine. For sure. You know what? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I might stay in bed <laughs> if, uh, if it wasn't my kid. So one more thing that was a little bit you know, questioning about whether or not Burke was involved. The 911 operator who took the call, her name was Kim Archuleta, and she said that she thought she heard three different voices at the end of the call. She thought she heard Patsy say, okay, we've called the police, now what? After Patsy thought that the call had been ended. And after hearing that, Kim remained on the line trying to hear what else was being said. And she thinks... That she heard somebody say, what did you do? Help me, Jesus. 
And then Burke says, what did you find? Now, we've posted a couple of the different audio analyses on our website. If you want to listen for yourself, we're not going to play them because they're really grainy and hard to listen to. My thought, and it's just my personal thought, is if I tell you in this audio, you're going to hear somebody say, hey, go get the ketchup from the refrigerator, then that's what you're going to hear because you're going to be disposed, Mm -hmm. you know, predisposed to hearing that. Um, I've listened to it over and over and over. I think I can hear help me Jesus, but I don't know that I can hear anything else. And I think that's just a normal thing that if we were calling the police or if we were calling 911, we know Patsy was very religious. That sounds like a normal thing that she would say as she's putting down the phone. Yeah, doesn't strike me as, as anything. No, same. So wrapping up Burke and sort of the thought process behind, did Burke do it? If so, why and how? The former chief investigator for the district attorney in Boulder is the one who really believes that Burke committed the crime. He says his hypothesis is that the Ramseys came home around 9.30 or 10 on Christmas night. And he thinks John Benet was probably asleep and that John carried her upstairs and put her to bed. And Patsy stayed downstairs with Burke and served him, you know, some hot tea and his pineapple and milk to get him, you know, to go to bed. And he says he thinks that accounts for all the physical evidence as well as some of the latent prints that were found. And then Patsy gets John Bonet up to go to the bathroom again. Because remember, she is wetting the bed pretty regularly. So before Patsy goes to bed, it would be her normal procedure to get John Bonet up, take her to the bathroom one more time. And at that point, JonBenet's awake enough that she's like, oh, maybe I'm still hungry. I'll go downstairs and get a snack. Patsy goes upstairs and starts packing for their trip to Michigan. So she's not in the room. And when JonBenet goes downstairs, Burke gets upset about something. Whether, does she steal the pineapple? Is he mad about Christmas? Is he whatever it is? He gets upset and strikes her or pushes her and she hits her head. We mentioned in our discussion of John and Patsy that DNA cleared the entire family in 2008, including Burke. However, in 2016, that conclusion was called into question when a forensic expert revealed that the DNA from their unknown male number one DNA may have actually been the composite from multiple people, which would render it worthless as evidence and not able to rule the Ramsey family out. I don't know a lot about DNA or scientific kind of stuff, but have we come any further since uh, 2008 or 2016 that would have any more uh, info? I mean, we really haven't heard any more about that one piece of evidence other than John Ramsey is asking for all of the DNA evidence to be sent to an outside lab that, you know, might have some higher forensic capabilities than what either the state or the FBI has. Right, okay. Yeah, so, you know, I think, again, that DNA is going to really come into play when we figure out, you know, was it the family or was it an intruder? You know, which is something we haven't really discussed yet. And I think in our next episode, we'll go into more details on some of the intruder theories, which if you think the ransom note was crazy, some of these intruder theories are off the wall, but but actually make a lot of sense. And so we're going to go into that next time. Okay. That's interesting because now that you're mentioning that, we've not talked about potential entry points 
or exit point. So I'm excited to hear about what you've uncovered. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to be said about this window in the basement that was broken. Could somebody have gotten into it or out of it? And then, you know, when John and Patsy Ramsey initially talked to the police and the police said, you know, hey, who has access to your home? They listed like two or three people, but once they started adding up the number of people that had keys to their home, mm. they came up with over 30 people. It's wild. That had access. That, that's a lot mm-hmm. to have a key to your home who could, you know, enter, lock the door behind them and you would never know right. it. Right. So that's what we have coming up next week. Elena, do you want to tell us about your, we're going to switch gears yes. in episode number four and you've got a great story for us. Yeah, I'm excited. So when I think about, you know, the, the, the story that kind of got me down this rabbit hole of, you know, for lack of a better verbiage, falling in love with true crime and kind of knowing the backstory and things. I think about Sharon Tate and the Manson family. And I'm, that's what I've been working on for this. I'm excited to kind of delve into that. I can't uh, wait to hear all about yeah, it. Thanks. It's going to be great. All right. Well, we will see you guys next week on Crime Estate. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. Mm